0: Welcome to I Spit On Your Podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spinsters of Horror. This is a time once a month where I put down my bloody knitting needles and Kelly steps away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research and passion. On this episode, we are continuing our discussion
1: on the top three horror villains of the 80s. This time around, it's all about Friday the 13th. We'll be looking into the final girls of the franchise, the POV shot and voyeurism in the slasher film, and why the hell Jason is so damn popular. So pick your poison and listen on, if you dare. So, Friday the 13th, I have watched pretty much the entire series sporadically throughout my life, but overall, it's actually my least watched franchise, actually. Nightmare on Elm Street is my favorite, so that one I am super familiar with and I've watched way more often, but... So, throughout my life, Jason's... He's made appearances, but not many times.
0: For myself, it's the same thing. I... Really only watched uh, Friday the 13th a couple years ago when, once again, DVD on a random like cheap purchase, so I had one and two, so I watched those two, and then I think a couple summers ago, Netflix had three, four, five, and six on, so I watched them off and on, and then I watched Friday vs. Jason with my uh, good friend of mine, uh, Dave Cardi, who really enjoys the series, but I'm like Kelly, Jason... I like the Friday the Chasing series, but it's not my favorite. I'm more like, I like Nightmare on Elm Street, and that's the series I gravitate more towards.
1: Right. So, what are some things that you like about the franchise? Or, uh, as we know, we're only speaking of the first eight films. still a <laughs> lot of movies, but only the releases in the 80s. So, out of the first uh, eight movies, what did you like about them?
0: What I really like about the first eight movies, because before we started this podcast, I ranted and raved about the, the Jason Goes to Hell is uh, what I like about the first ones is that they're very summer. They have like a summer feel to them and I really like that they have that summer slasher feel and the fact that like the very first film it's Pamela Voorhees Who's a killer, so it really like it always throws everyone off that you don't really know Jason as Jason until about the third film. So I really like that. The practical effects are really fun. I there's like some of the music is really good. Some of the characters are all interesting and that's what I really like about the the earlier films that they're they're more of that slasher vibe and I enjoy that. They're you know, they're just nice to watch for like a cheap nice movie on like a summer night or something like that.
1: <laughs> you love atmosphere and I do. this is everyone listening You'll come to tell and know that Jess loves atmosphere, so it's just it's all about like if something's very summery, she'll love watching it in the summer. <laughs> if it's like spooky, it's all great in the fall. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if there's a winter theme, she loves watching it during the winter time. Yes, so. <laughs> the thing I'm that's not, my winter movie. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, so what I like about Friday Thirteenth. So I love Jason's look. Like mm. he's he's a super iconic. Villain, uh, especially later on in the series, he really gets like his aesthetics and his outfits, yeah, <laughs> kind of come into their own, which I enjoy. Uh, I love the final girl aspects of it. This series really kind of perfected, you know, not only the the slasher formula but just the final girl aspect of, of slashers, which I really really enjoy and I'm thankful for. Uh, the franchise gave us that fantastic Alice Cooper song. Yeah. Jason Lives. <laughs> that is definitely on my Halloween playlist, and I just listen to it all the time, anyways, but it definitely is in my top Halloween favorites. <laughs> uh, Betsy Palmer, I think her acting and performance in Friday the 13th original is so fantastic. So I really enjoyed watching that. And these movies can be really fun to watch. They're complete mindless entertainment and I I value that every once in a while. <laughs> what about dislikes?
0: And dislikes, I guess like like you said, like they're complete mindless entertainment and there's a part of me that dislikes that a bit. I sometimes like for me when I watch a horror film I really want to get really engrossed into it and really uh feel scared and sometimes I just like when I watch Friday the 13th I don't feel scared I just like I know like stuff's gonna I know he's gonna kill people like yeah some of the kills are great and you're like damn like that's just crazy how that happened but I feel like as the series continues on it becomes too formulaic I think, for myself, I feel that the final girls are stronger in the earlier half of the series and not as so much in the later half of the series. And that's disappointing because, you know, as we go through the 80s and then even into like the 90s, you you really, we should be seeing these final girls becoming stronger and more um, relatable and more more closer ideas to what's happening kind of socially in in society. But yeah, you don't see that. You just see them kind of getting weaker and almost kind of really annoying. Um, so that's where I, and the films start to come a little goofy, like, especially the final one, like number eight, which is too goofy for me. There was that one scene where Jason comes out of the water and he, you see like him like dead on and he's like looking at it and at, at, um, and then you see him like tilt his head and then he's looking at a sign that has the Jason mask on it. And I'm just like, really? Why? <laughs> Why? Jason's not goofy. Jason doesn't make sounds too. He also makes sounds. Yeah. I did not like that. (laughs)
1: No. No, I agree with you on many of those points as well. Uh, And we'll talk definitely more about our final girls later on. So for me, I also dislike the formulaic nature. I understand the, the need and the desire to have these movies follow such an exact formula. But then I just end up finding them so uninspiring later on. Yeah, when it's the same thing over and over again, essentially, it's it's just it ends up being quite boring. And some of the kills on this rewatch, some of the kills are pretty brutal and are like, oh damn, like an axe to the head, and he just throws the woman over the TV, which I think it was number seven. Um, but there's also a lot of kills that are really quite boring. Either you don't see them, or it's a quick, like slash to the neck, or yeah. he just like loves throwing women out windows, you know. So there's. There, so the kills actually aren't that fantastic. Actually, so,
0: and I agree with you because there was a couple kills too where I literally, I think in one movie he killed some people like the exact same way. Or there's yep. like, or he'll always you always know he's gonna like plunge something through someone in the back. Like you're like, oh, saw that coming. Yeah. <laughs> like,
1: completely right. So I find there's so many movies in this franchise and so many of them are fillers, and it's just it makes for not really enjoyable watching. The biggest thing that I dislike, and I was really disappointed to to hear about, so I actually really love the original. Mm. And I love how classic it is, how it's such that it has that total summer slasher vibe to it, and it ruins it for me because they actually kill a snake in that yes. original movie. Yeah. So fuck Friday the 13th and fuck Sean Cunningham. Sorry. Yeah, no. You don't kill animals in your movies and think that that's okay. You don't. So
0: Don't need to kill animals. Ever. Never. So, to begin our discussion about the Friday the 13th series and one of the things that, you know, Kelly and I talked about when we were thinking about this podcast is why are people so fanatical about Jason? Like, what is it? Like, the fandom for Friday the 13th is big. And it's interesting because, like, you think it would be as, like, Uh, to me, I sometimes feel like it is more well-known of a series to people, uh, outside of Friday the 13th, I'm sorry, Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween. Like, I had this interesting experience the other day when I was at a hardware store, and I was picking up some crafts for uh, some supplies for the Jason mask I'm gonna make. And I kept being asked questions by the guys, like you know, because they thought it was weird some of the materials I was grabbing. And I was like, okay. And then so I'm like, well, I'm making the mask, the, the Jason mask from Friday the Thirteenth. They're like, oh yeah, that's so cool. They're like, yeah. And one guy's like, I don't watch horror movies, but I know who Jason is. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I kind of like emphasize the idea, like sometimes, like you know, people who don't even really watch horror movies know who Jason is. And so, and like so, there's like a legacy around Jason Voorhees, and it's he's been part of our mainstream culture for 40 years, with movies grossing over 464 million US. You know, from the series, we've got it spawned its own TV series. It's got young adult novels around Jason, comic books, video games, merchandise. There is uh, Yahweh novels around the whole Jason thing. So a lot of real, like Japanese anime style romanticism of uh, Jason. Uh, The first film was... uh was released in uh, 1980. It was a film written by Victor Miller and directed by Sean S. Cunningham. And before Cunningham even secured financing for or even before like a single scene of the movie was shot, he took out an ad in a 1979 issue of Variety to, de- to you know about Friday the 13th declaring that this was going to be the scariest movie ever. And it was a really ballsy movie because the movie hadn't even been like, re- like done yet. like wasn't even filmed yet. And he was already making it sound like it's going to be the most terrifying movie ever when it was released.
1: I love that. That's just like a really cool origin story to this movie. Yeah, like really ballsy move,
0: right? Like I haven't, like, we haven't even filmed this movie. We know it's gonna be fucking awesome so we're gonna put it out there. It is gonna be amazing. We gotta live up to that hype. So the original director had never envisioned Jason to be the main takeaway from the series. From the beginning, he envisioned Pamela Voorhees as being the main takeaway, and he was actually very disappointed with the later on with later sequels when they turned Jason to be become the villain of the series. And he's quoted as saying, I still believe that the best part of my screenplay was the fact that a mother figure was a serial killer, working from a horribly twisted desire to avenge the senseless death of her son, Jason. Jason was dead from the very beginning. He was a victim and not a villain. Uh, Cunningham had always envisioned Pamela as a tragic figure within the context of a slasher film, a mother who would literally kill for her son which is really interesting and something that I've actually had a huge discussion with someone just the other night about the Jason series and both both of us talking about how Jason is really a victim and how he, you know, throughout the series, he's just a victim of neglect and helicopter parenting. It was all really interesting, this conversation. But the big question is always, it has been, is how does Jason come back to life in the sequel and as a grown man, which is still a mystery. No one really understands that connection. And I, I'm like, in my research, I read like a whole bunch of different theories about uh, why they brought him back or, or brought him back as an older man, older man the way he is. And then also too, the iconic hockey mask. Uh, doesn't appear until the third film. So when we associate Jason and the first two Friday Thirteens, we always think of the hockey mask. But Jason doesn't don the hockey mask until the third film, and they. One of the stories is that the director felt that Jason needed to have an accessory, something that kind of had him stand out other than wearing like a burlock sack over his head. And so that's why they just grabbed a hockey mask and put it on him. They said that would be great, like that's his thing. But there are also many theories around this as well. And it's really interesting. I didn't get enough time, but I really wanted, and I know Kelly wanted too. We were going to watch the documentary on the... Camp Crystal Lake series, but with having to watch all these films and do all the everything else around for this podcast, didn't get an opportunity to uh, get to check in that documentary. But I hope to at some point.
1: I got up to. The third film, which is like an over an hour in. It's oh like a seven gosh. hour documentary. I also didn't get a chance to. I still do want to because it's absolutely fascinating I love seeing all this behind the scenes information and, yeah. and the looks into it. So yeah. Neat.
0: And same here, and like I said, like in the research I was finding like there's different theories as to why Jason got a mask. Like there was one person who was saying, like, Oh yeah, there's like one guy who was like going to hockey or something like that and just had a mask with him and they wanted to put the mask. they didn't want people to see how Jason's face really looked, so they just hit they always had this mask on him, and the director was like, hey, that looks cool, let's just keep it on him. Um, (laughs) There's been many actors who have played Jason, Aria Lee, Lee, Warrington, Gillette, Richard Broker, Ted White, Tom Morgo, CJ Graham, Kane Hodder, which everyone knows who Kane Hodder is, Ken, Kirazinger, and Derek Myers. So lots of people have played Jason over the years. And it was the 2009 remake was all about a reimagining of the first four films to make Jason the main killer.
1: So going into Friday the 13th, fandom, let's kind of bring it down to the basics. So I think what a lot of people enjoy, and especially if you can imagine watching these movies upon release in the 80s, probably a very, very exciting time to be alive then. (laughs) (laughs) But it follows that complete formula of a slasher film. So this is a bit of a reiteration of something that I talked about in The Nightmare on Elm Street Episode, so please go listen to episode six. <laughs> so the components of a slasher film was uh, developed by John Kenneth Muir, and so I'm just going to quickly go through what they are because every single Friday the Thirteenth movie has these. Essentially, every single element of this, so it's so predictable. So usually there's the location or setting, which is you know Camp Blood or Camp Crystal Lake. You have the deadly preamble, crime of the past, or the transgression. So the motive or the cause of the attacks, which was initially the apparent death of Jason. And then the death of Mrs. Voorhees, which continues on. It's a revenge tale, which is one of the other things I do like about it. Character archetypes, or the killer and the victim pool. So you'll have the killer, the bitch, the practical joker, and the jock. The Cassandra figure so this is a person that warns of the danger often the local drunk so in part one and part two you have Ralph sweet Ralph he's like don't go there (laughs) it's camp blood he just warns everyone and of course nobody listens to these people (laughs) now you have useless authority and the veneer of response of respectability so cops doctors there's a lot of cops in these movies that don't really do much We have our red herrings, our distraction or misdirection. We have our final girls, who are super important to this series and slashers overall, which we'll get into later. We have our common scenarios, and you definitely see a lot of these in Friday the 13th. So you have our first scare, and if it's a sequel, then the first kill is often the survivor of the previous film, as we see in part two, Alice Dies. False scares, the classic cat jumping out at you there that happens many times throughout this series i think four times (laughs) Uh, nature and failed technology you may see some of the less of the failed technology because there wasn't tons of technology especially early 80s the vice precedes slice and dice you have your sin and then your punishment you're smoking you're drinking you're having sex Mm. you die (laughs) <laughs> the final chase and tour of the dead classic and one of my favorite elements of the film so you know especially our final girls end up coming to you know an aspect of the house and then all of the corpses of her friends start falling out of the closets they're in the fridge they're in the forest whatever <laughs> <laughs> the coup the coup de grace that's french over the top death scene so it's like a really shocking gory scene we got ms Voorhees' death in the, part one The sting in the tail or the last scare, the point of view and space relation. So, and we'll definitely get into the point of view shot, but they use that for misdirection. We can see through the eyes of the killer and the killer seems to know the surroundings very well. He knows when people are going to be alone and he's going to be at the right place at the right time. When I was watching part eight today and I was like, how did Jason end up in this area? There's no way that he would have been able to go from point A to point B. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're that just, quickly. Like, no, no, no. No, no, this actually doesn't make any sense. Teleportation. <laughs> Jason knows
0: how to teleport.
1: <laughs> that would be interesting. Bring, bring the element of intrigue up in those movies. So, just like Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th became a brand. It's a well-oiled machine. These people knew exactly what they were doing. They are following this exact same slasher template each time people were eating this up They there of course they were box office hits you know one would be released make a whole bunch of money next one you know they would just keep going and going and it was that familiar name people knew what to expect right and again we kind of went a bit more in depth in this other nightmare on elm street episode so please do take a look at that there was a lot of branding and commercialization in the 80s and friday the 13th was definitely no stranger to that they ate that shit up so another portion of the movies is that when you're watching it you get this quote unquote insider knowledge and they're called serial films. So you know, those types of movies that are in a franchise there's many sequels, so we know the villain. We quote unquote know Jason as far as much as we can anyways. And you know, going into these movies, we know what he's going to do. So we think if we were the people in these movies that we could do better. We're like, we would not be dumb like these people. We would not go up the stairs. We would leave. We would do all these different things. So it could provide people with a sense of security. We know what to expect and we can brave it. And these movies were very simple. They're very basic it was these were not fancy movies they're really cheap and that's why slashers are you know they are cheap to make there's not mm-hmm. a lot of fancy things going on they're easy to watch so they're super cheap to make and they were highly highly popular so friday the 13th the budget of it was about four $500,000, and it made over $40 million. Wow. That's nuts. And of course, just like, you know, looking at the origins of Friday the 13th, they just like, okay, we're going to have this poster, and this general premise, and we're going to promote it as it's going to be a bigger movie than it actually is, and it was a super low-budget film, and then it, like, kind of a brilliant tactic. Ballsy, like you said, tactic, and it paid off for them.
0: So, in the way of getting out the Friday the 13th, with creating such an interesting uh, formula of a slasher film and following these components you get the making of what we call a monster. So the original script had also had originally called Jason to be normal-looking um, with his uh, disability actually being more mental than it was physical but special effects makeup artist Tom Savini we all know who he is in the horror in the horror community wanted Jason to look more physically deformed as a child because he felt that that would be more psychologically disturbing for people to see. So a lot of the times, whenever they would show images of Jason as a child, it was always like disturbing, like deformed head, you know, and so you want to feel like at the same, while it would feel disturbing, you'd also feel kind of some sympathy and some empathy for that character um, when he's in those drowning scenes. When it came to making Jason the for like especially older Jason the formidable foe against our final girls and the killer of our movies, actors were always chosen to play Jason based on their body size and their physical ability to do stunts. There was one actor and I, I can't remember his name, but he was chosen for Jason's size, but he couldn't do physical stunts, so they had to bring someone else in to do the physical stunts and then have him back for the body. But then they always made sure that from then that point on, that the character that who the actor who plays Jason. Had has to be able to do those two components. Um, right, because he doesn't really need to talk, ever. Like, Jason does not talk. <laughs> 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 I re-emphasize this uh, the physical design has changed over the years with uh, adult uh, Jason he's got adult. he's had a deformed face we had the addition of the hockey mask instead of a burlap sack over time we see that Jason becomes more of a rotted corpse and we see that showing more in the physical altercations you see like all the things that happen to Jason throughout the series like we know that he has he's gone head-to- head with a motorboat like literally you know so they show these in the special like when he has he's had an axe to the head or machete to the head, you know, um eventually the mask starts to infuse into his face. Like the mask becomes Jason's face. Um and then you see like pooling of blood in the back of his head. So whenever he has died, the million times that he's died, um he really is just this giant rotting corpse walking around and killing people, and he just gets worse and worse and worse every movie. Jason's personality. Uh, Jason is mute, and his motivations for killing people remains really unknown. Um, people have written up theories that maybe he's like more of a, like a, a psycho savant, and that he does what he does to please his mother, right? That he's the Norman Bates of Cramp Crystal Lake. Other ideas are that he's prudish. And he believes in upholding moral values, so no, no promiscuity, no drugs, no sex. Like you do these things out with under without adult supervision, you're gonna get killed. And also at the same time. Kane Hodder, who's been very well known for playing Jason, believed that Jason will kill anyone in his path, but not animals or children. And there was a scene in the eighth movie where he was supposed to kick a dog, kick the dog um, in one of the scenes, and the director was like, You okay, can't, now you're, you're supposed to kick the dog. And Kane Hodder was like, I refuse, I will not kick an animal. Like, that's not what Jason does. Some some fun facts about Jason is that in 1992, he was awarded the MTV Lifetime Achievement Award. (laughs) 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 That's amazing. (laughs) Uh, He was in Wes Craven's film, Cursed, as one of the uh, wax sculpture, and it was actually Jason from Jason Goes to Hell, which, meh, that's okay. Um, Hmm. In all of his films, he's used an estimated 71 different weapons. And Jason has had at least 100, 151 kills in out of any horror movie slasher. High kill count. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: so you hit a really interesting point about Jason being more seen as a sympathetic, sympathetic character. Uh, you're right. He was this unfortunately deformed child who was harmed by neglectful, uncaring people. So. You know him as a child. You can imagine the loneliness, the isolation, and the rejection that he most likely have felt. I mean, we don't get to see this—you know—this timeline in in his life. But knowing what people are like and societies like, especially kids around, you know, in the early eighties, um, 80s, eighties. 80s. Oh, here Caesar making his <laughs> making his presence known. He's he- <laughs> right. So, you know, this is something that we can a lot of us can relate to and we really feel for, unlike Freddie, who is a child molester and murderer. We have no sympathy for you. Uh, Michael Myers is pure evil. It cannot relate to that mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean so he actually when you think about the top three he is the most relatable sympathetic character so yeah. he's he can be really interesting and you know they probably could have done a lot more with this franchise if they would have just built that up a bit more you still could have kept it relatively form- formulaic in the slasher but we, there's a lot of interesting smart slasher movies out there that are mm-hmm. not the 13th that you know they could have built this up more uh, and I think it really would have done the franchise um, a well of good to put a little bit more thought into it. But yeah. you know, they did what they did. They made all the money. People enjoy it. Here we are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and again, it's you know going through all these series, and, and essentially this is what slashers are like. But it's not about the victims. It's it's about the story behind the killer. Right. So often, we barely even remember any of these people's names, any of the the teenagers' names, unless you're a final girl, but you don't remember anybody's name, because it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Because it's not about them, it's about him, it's about his revenge, it's about him killing everyone. Which I think, you know, there's a lot of interesting elements to this franchise. From a movie watching perspective, it can be very challenging, but I think there is some interesting elements to it. So coming back to, like, fandom... I have been recommended to watch Never Hike Alone, the incredible fan-made film for years. Everybody's saying, watch Never Hike Alone. Never Hike Alone. Okay, so it's produced by Womp Stomp Films. It was directed by, written by Vincent DeSanti. So, this was a fan-made film that was all backed on Kickstarter a number of years ago and right now it's on Indiegogo because they're currently on their second run of actual physical releases of the movie. So, what Never Hike Alone follows the story of Kyle McLeod. So he's a young, backcountry kind of hiker uh, who discovers the long-lost remains of Camp Crystal Lake. And just watch this. I highly recommend it. It's only an hour long. Oh, okay. It is the best Friday the 13th movie that's not a Friday the 13th movie that I've ever seen. So okay. out of all eight of them, like this one is amazing. So it combines a little bit of found footage because he's like this backpacker and he has some kind of youtube channel he's got something then he uploads videos regularly and anyway so it kind of takes him on this journey of back you know hiking and doing things out in the wilderness and he comes across uh the remains of the camp and it's so well done there's so much tension and dread and surprises and it's so well done and I mean, this is a fan-made film, so you have people who absolutely love and want to see a well, like a well-made Friday Thirteenth movie, and these people just did it. So that's awesome. It's really, really fantastic.
0: I love how an independent group can make a better film than like a major, like a major motion picture. Like,
1: a... yep, yep. Yeah, thanks, Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All about the indies. Totally. It's so good. So anybody who haven't seen it, I I strongly recommend you watch it because it was so fantastic. So a portion of us trying to understand, you know, why people absolutely love and adore this series so much. We kind of reached out on Twitter to find out uh, why people love this series. So Jess and I will go through a a number of the responses that we that we found.
0: Yeah. So we definitely got quite a few responses. Uh, One of them came from uh, Jeff Schmidt and his response is: "It is a series of pure, unadultered id. It's about the joy of youth and the feeling, the feeling of youthful immortality being brutally denied. It's about the cruelty and the randomness of life and death. It's the perfect series to explain that life is short. Live it up as best you can. But in a way, that's true, right? Like you could die tomorrow, so why not For live sure. today? Yes." <laughs> So Jennifer Ratu of The Horror Virgin, a really great podcast that we both enjoy, says, I love the franchise, but the original one is my all-time favorite. The camp setting, the weather, who the killer turns out to really be, all works for me. What I love most is the simplicity and the clarity of the slasher formula. It is my favorite horror movie comfort food. I would agree. (laughs) Uh, Another one from the Pod in the Pendulum podcast. Uh, They said, I love how it evolved. The first form films tell a tight, scary campfire story filled with kids that I knew recognized growing up. They were the big kids from the neighborhood I wanted to be one day, and to see them dispatched so casually was terrifying at that age. I agree. 100%. (laughs) Uh,
1: And then I have three. So Willis or at Armored Foe. Jason to me represents the ups and downs that life throws at you, and no matter what, you're never really dead you'll get back up to slay again as a kid part 3 blew my mind and to this day it's my favorite I love that hulking deranged mutant maniac R.I.P. Richard Brooker which is uh, the original Jason Mm -hmm. Julia Lynch at Julia lynch to me these movies mean no matter how hard fast relentlessly you run your problems will continue to fuck you beyond comprehension wow amazing dark (laughs) dark you know i'll have one last one ash from the horror vanguard said the central metaphor of a buried past resurrecting to exact revenge on a world that never sought to heal the initial wound from our past to the depths of our futures is a lesson we would do well to heed today so incredibly well spoken yeah (laughs) and articulate anyways so these people have really you know really great opinions and uh, theories and perceptions of this franchise that I would never have even thought about you know what I mean and it just kind of goes to show that we all perceive things differently and we just you know those people love the franchise for the
0: reasons that they stated yeah, I completely agree, and I've had other, like, you know, talking to other friends who just, sometimes, like you said, uh, as like Jennifer said, it's like comfort food. There are people who just enjoy the Friday Thirteen series just because it's just a nice casual horror movie that they can watch and have a good time and enjoy with, and then there's other people who actually do, like, my myself, enjoy the first few ones because it really does kind of tell a story of this, as um, Ash from Horror Vanguard says, like how your, your past will come back to haunt you, right? So definitely so one of the things that we also we like to do on this podcast is kind of talk about our top three kills there's a lot to remember and honestly i was like (laughs) what happened like because like you said they all just kind of bleed in together but there are a couple ones that stand out to me so from the seventh film the sleeping bag scene and i'm pretty sure everyone likes that scene uh, everyone when, loves
1: that scene yes. yeah
0: when jason pulls the girl out and she's in the sleeping bag and just like hits it against the tree that one i kind of was like yeah that one caught me uh in the sixth film was this the sixth film no the the scene of the two lovers in uh, no it was up in one number five
1: Yeah.
0: Um, Where it reminds me of the burning, where they just finished having sex. She's like, you know, outstretched, waiting for him to come back. And all of a sudden, you see the garden shears and come down on, and like she just sees them come down. Like, that's exactly a scene from the burning. So I really like that scene, and then of course in part three, my favorite my favorite girl of the series uh, of the of the series Vera, her death scene gets me. Um, just when she's just like out of nowhere, like shot in the eye with the with the spear gun. Mm-hmm. Those are my top three.
1: Nice. My top three are in part three the nitty needle through the mouth. Ah. <laughs> I was like, well, knitting needle, that's, you know, very spinster like. Yeah, and yeah. I love when anything gets pushed through either from the mouth to the back of the head or vice versa. Oh, I wow. think it's brutal. Yeah. Friday 13th, part four the bone saw neck twist. Mm, in the hospital, in the first scene.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Yes. Takes that wonderful, wonderful shiny medical bone saw. Slices his slices his neck and then twists his head around. It's great. <laughs> Ugh, brutal. And then I just finished watching Eight Today, and I think this is the only redeeming part of the whole movie, which is that dude's head getting punched right off. Because yeah. it's so dumb. But anytime something like that happens, it makes me laugh so much. And it's it's reminiscent to me of Killer Clowns from Outer Space. <laughs> I was watching that movie and I thought, well, this movie is really bananas. And then one of the killer clowns punches a guy's head just to clear off. Like, oh, I see what's happening in this movie. This is fun. Yeah, I like it.
0: Yeah, especially like we were saying earlier, when you're watching that whole fight scene between the guy just keeps punching Jason, just keeps punching Jason until he tires himself out and all it takes is like one punch from Jason and the head's gone. And you're like, okay.
1: that is that scene goes on for much too long. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Much too long.
0: I completely agree. Uh, so, obviously, we're not going to talk slasher films without talking about one of our favorite topics, which is the final girls of the Friday the 13th series. And we have many of them. Um, we will list out we have Alice, Ginny, Chris, Tina, Renee, Pamela, Trish, and Megan. That is eight. Yes, guys. Yep. Uh, so, as we know, the final girl is the heroic figure that we have for girls and because because she represents a mode of resistance while she perceives danger and she feels terror she resists and she fights back and that is the mode of the final girl that we've seen for many many years but one of the things too and i wanted to kind of i've kind of bringing up and kelly's going to go more into discussion about that. Is how the idea of the final girl has also kind of changed as well, in the sense of the final girl also being a perpetrator. So in Scream Four, we see uh, people want to emulate being the final girl. So the murderer in, Sc- in Scream Four it wants she's doing it because she wants to be the final girl, or we get final girls who are depiction of the monstrous feminine because they act out in altered states of consciousness by embodying and enacting violence on patriarchal values. So. This is just like an interesting idea of final girls that I pulled out in my research for the Friday the Thirteenth because they were not only were they addressing the the regular final girl, you know, being the smart boyish type uh, from Carol Clover's uh, theory, but also that the final girl is that she's evolved and she's changed a lot throughout the years, and especially uh, final girls were becoming a lot of the products of their generation. So we have the '80s and the '90s, and then later the 2000s. And so, kind of my general thoughts on the finer girls of Friday the 13th is I find them very strong in the beginning and very weak in the end. have Alice who is, she's a a bit older than about the the group that comes into the first film and she's kind of a little distance from everyone but she is smart, she is resourceful, she's a fighter, she you know comes up, she goes head to head with uh, Pamela Voorhees and it's just you know she's able to defend herself in the end. But one of what I really and I'm thinking like earlier I had chosen that my two who my two favorite final girls are but I'm thinking I might be changing that around because Ginny in the second film you find out she's like a psychology major and she's you know really invested in looking after the camper in the camp counselors and up training them something like that but also in the idea of Jason and you know she feels sympathy for him and when we see her you know trying to trick. uh, Jason believing that she's Pamela Voorhees by putting on the sweater. So like you get these really strong final girls. I feel like in the third one, Chris is also because she's uh, she's revisiting the terror of uh, Jason. She, you know she's fought him once and escaped. She's gonna fight him again. She's gonna escape. Um, and she's smart and resourceful. But I find that later on throughout the series, they get a bit weaker and they don't really they don't really hold up. And I find that especially in uh, the 7th and 8th film uh, Trish, no sorry, Tina and um, Renee, Rene, Rene, yeah. I did not like those characters at all. I especially did not like the fact that in the seventh film that they were essentially ripping off Dream Master or, um, with this whole idea that this Jason uh, goes up against a foe that has like telekinetic powers and you know we see we've already seen that with Freddy going up up against Alice in the uh, in as the Dream Master and I'm sorry like if I were to pick between the two films Dream Master better <laughs> Alice kicks fucking ass and she could literally destroy Tina like they're pa- mm-hmm. like just mm-hmm. as, as characters I'm like Tina just she bothered me throughout the whole movie
1: I so much agree with all of that Uh, I each when I was watching through the movies I made a point to to make notes about each specific final girl and a lot of the There's a lot of similarities between them in the sense they're like, yep, they're smart and they're brave. They're resourceful, you know, especially with like Alice and Ginny. They like work on the camp. They're like handy. They'll fix stuff. You know what I mean? And later on in the series, it's much less about the final girls. It's more about Tommy, which Mm. is fine.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, He has actually a very interesting story arc that I wish they even leaned into more and took out the final girl kind of aspect but there's you know not really so we have going like for four five and six you have those are really Tommy Doyle stories overall yeah and so in four you have Trish but Tommy Doyle survives as well so he's our final boy one day we'll talk about the final boys completely mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's really what he is uh, Pamela Not the final survivor. Our classic final girl is the only one that should be alive at the end. That is why it's called the final girl. Um, And then, again, in part six, it's more of a Tommy Doyle story. Megan is there. So I agree. The first three are our strongest, most interesting, I think, final girls. Let's see. Alice fucking cuts the head off of Ms. Voorhees. I mean, <laughs> she's fantastic. But, you know, she's up for strip poker. She drinks beer. She's smoking pot. She breaks into the oh, office. Yeah. You know, like, and she's super smart. I made a note that she she knew something was wrong. People are being killed. She ties ropes to the door handles to prevent anybody from getting in. So, mm-hmm. like, Alice is pretty badass. Yeah. And then you mentioned Ginny. And this was a hugely brilliant Plan And risky of her to do Which was to put on Pam LaVorhe's sweater And act like her to distract Jason yep. And it almost works And honestly I really think it should have That should have been the thing that ended Jason And that would make for a much more interesting And better ending Except for him You know she leans over a little bit He sees his mother's head in the back And then her boyfriend comes mm. And kind of saves everything It just it was yeah. really slightly disappointing in in that regard. Folks who may or may not have actually read Carol Clover's Men, Women, and Chainsaws, it's kind of a renowned resource for horror academic reading, but she defined the final girl as, she is the one who encounters the mutilated bodies of her friends and perceives the full extent of the preceding horror and of her own peril, who is chased, cornered, wounded, whom we see Scream, stagger, fall, rise, and scream again. She alone looks death in the face, but she alone finds the strength to stay the killer long enough to either be rescued or kill them herself. The classic kind of, she's normally the main character, not sexually active. She's watchful, intelligent, resourceful. She's admirable. She's a survivor. And she's also the example of why slasher movies are not inherently misogynistic. Some problematic elements of them overall, sometimes, but she is a wonderful, wonderful element of of slasher movies that, you know, we can't forget. So, yes, looking back at our final girls, later on, there's much less of them. They just have, you know, less interesting stories, but it ends up being more about Tommy Doyle. So, about Tina. So, essentially... I was really hoping that that movie would be great. And there's elements of it that I did really like. She's really upfront about her trauma when she meets that boy that she thinks is cute. She's like, hey, I'm dealing with some shit. I was in a, you know, I was in a hospital. I was hospitalized for this. I came back here to confront some things. And I don't know if you really want to get involved with me. He still did. That's not Mm -hmm. the point. But I love how she was just like really upfront about it right away. I think her story overall was probably the most developed we kind of have like a beginning middle and end to her story but I think this just again the execution of it was just not not very well done she used a bunch of different weapons to harm and kill Jason but so did all the other final girls but they did it physically which I think is much more admirable than using our mind I think Mm. they tried to just bring some kind of interesting element to it and it didn't really work
0: yeah, and I also, like, for myself, I was very disappointed in the ending of that film where she brings back her father to take down Jason. <laughs> oh, my God. And I was yes. like, like, really? Ugh. Really, this is happening? And I'm like, once again, so she's using a male figure to save her, you yeah. know? like, And we kind of, like, you know, we seen that again, like, time and time again. Like, in the end, like, a male figure is somehow going to save them. So it's going to be her dead, abusive father who's going to save her. It just didn't, it didn't sit well with me.
1: No, it was a. If I think if they would have had a completely different ending and just had her kill him, that would be much better. And yes. also her dad is not even like a zombie. He looks like a normal human when he yeah. jumps out. I'm like, what just happened? <laughs> I don't think this movie I've actually ever seen. I've seen so many of the other ones, and yeah, they kind of bleed together sometimes. But this one I don't think I'd ever actually seen. Oh, boy. <laughs> I kind of want to do a bit of a shout-out to Megan. So Megan was in part six. So not really a true final girl, But she's goddamn sassy. So she is the daughter of the sheriff in that one who just like immediately is all about Tommy Doyle and wanting to help him and save him. She like fights off the cops and run like drives away from the cops for like high speed cop chasing.
0: (laughs) Yeah. yeah. She's not afraid Uh, to speak her mind and be a little shit when she needs to be like calling out her dad and stuff like that.
1: Completely, right? She's yeah. just like a rebel without a cause, you know what I mean? And yeah. what was really interesting, I watched um this one with with Brandon, my partner, and he made a really interesting note that she's even dressed like James Dean. So she's got a white t shirt, a bright red jacket, and denim jeans. Oh. Coincidence. Coincidence. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not, right? Because she's so damn sassy. I liked her a lot. Yeah. If she, if that could have been more of like, this is a Megan movie, she would have kicked some ass and I think that would have been much better.
0: So one of the interesting things that I came across in my research about these films was the advertising and marketing for these films. So films from the 1978 to 1991 really targeted young female moviegoers because they, in these films, they're able to show independent female protagonists, um, heterosexual coupling and female bonding. So we see this all in the Friday the 13th series, you know, with our strong final girls, we have obviously people having sex, and then we have a lot of the girls like all being really good friends and stuff like that, especially in uh, number six. Uh, Friday the 13th offered a tough heroine with some romance. We see courtship rituals as part of everyday youth interactions, so we have Marcy and Jack in the first film, who are a couple who are very much in love, and then Steve and Alice, um, showing a bit of an unresolved romantic relationship between the two of them. So in, the 19, in 1979, marketing teenage love stories was all was at an all-time high, and Paramount Pictures wanted to take advantage of this. So what they ended up doing was they employed what they called the use of lobby cards, so kind of like baseball cards, but for movies, and they would highlight a lot of the female youth from these films, and using a lot of, like, um, orienting the material around a lot of female-positive um, ideas, such as uh, female characters heavily in romance or in bonding or showing agencies so they show like different scenes from the films you know when uh, they had one card showing like Alice jumping from a Jeep we also see Alice saving a swimmer and they really wanted to market these films to be really female youth friendly so Friday the 13th itself was a film that was, was an unexpected hit in the summer of 1980 and it cemented the potential for more female friendly teen slasher films that not only will the teenage audience grow but it will be also mostly female youth audience. So when by securing the young female theatre go- goers uh, remaining the key objective for companies behind Friday the 13th and even the Nightmare on Elm Street series, these franchises were dominate, which dom- these dominated teenage slasher ticket sales from the mid-1980s to the early 1990s. We see these movie industries marketing to young women in a way and these are like, these really interesting elements to not only just build up the final girl but, you know, we've got a final girl so we've got to have more women in these audiences.
1: One aspect of the Friday the 13th series where, of course, could be definitely a product of the time, but I read a brief article on graveyardshiftsisters.com called The Sisters of Friday the 13th. So there are very few people of color in this series and definitely none that are the final girl. They're all young white women. And there's a lot of our token... Uh, black characters in these series, um, but some of them are kind of memorable. Uh, I definitely recommend checking, uh, taking a look at that article that they did. But we have Fox in Friday the 13th, part three. She was badass, part of that gang. <laughs> she was great. Is yep. this your rubber? That's great. And she was. Uh, I always love gangs from the 80s. They're, they're dang, there's chains all over them. It's like that's not actually what anybody would wear. too heavy it's too heavy way too heavy yeah it's not great Uh, and then Anita from part uh, five so she was like the girlfriend of that young boy's brother that are all just like smoking pot in the in the van she was so lovely and she was one of my favorite parts of that movie even though her character was very very short lived she just Mm. seemed really sweet and fun and lovely that I just want to like hang out and smoke with her (laughs) So this was obviously unfortunately a common practice in 80s horror. We didn't see a lot of people of color, definitely not in main roles and definitely were not our final girls. And the Friday the 13th franchise had so many f- sequels that it could have had a much more progressive kind of run. Yeah. You know, except they yep. followed the same template time and time again with with minimal kind of changes. So they had, you know, there was a, a an open kind of time to to do something a little bit different but they definitely didn't want to do that because why rock the boat I guess if it is you know doing really well so that was too bad something I definitely wanted to mention and we can't talk about Friday the 13th and women without having at least an honorable mention brief mention about Pamela Voorhees herself
0: yes so the mother of Jason the first killer of the film and the one who is often forgotten about by people Like, you talk to common people on the street, and they're just like, yeah, Friday the 13th, Jason the Killer, he's the killer in the first film. Or that classic scene in Scream where they ask (laughs) Drew Barrymore's character, you know, who's the first killer in the first movie? And she's like, Jason, I've seen that mill a thousand times. It's like, then you should know. It's Pamela Voorhees. yep. Pamela Voorhees. She serves as both Jason's strength and weaknesses. She killed for Jason and he kills for her. Um, it's believed that the story behind Pamela was that she had a breakdown after uh, Jason's drowning and experienced auditory hallucinations of Jason asking her to kill the teenagers who neglected him. She is truly terrifying. As a character, she was never suspected right away by anyone, you know, like she comes out of the Jeep and she's wearing like this nice old lady sweater and she's just got like such a kind face and you know, like as Kelly said, like (laughs) Betsy Palmer does an amazing job, just making you look like she's someone that you can trust. Like she is our everyday mother. And then she's in the cabin, and as she starts talking about her son, you start to see it's instant. Like you see it just change. It's like gear shift, and you're just like, "Oh man, I don't want to be alone in this cabin with this woman." No, she goes, she not. goes insane, and she goes she has gone insane, and she's going on a killing spree. And this is causing, and in a way, it's like uh, the original had, director had said, it causes a genre of fear of fearing the mother figure in horror, which is so interesting. She is a Mm -hmm. heartbroken mother who lost her child. She didn't deal with her grief in a very healthy way. Um, (laughs) And this is all especially because it was someone else's neglect. It was because of situations that she had no control over. And so she goes a more violent route to be able to heal from losing her her, her only child. Her only child. Jason is an only child. I don't care what Jason Goes to Hell says. (laughs) There is nothing Pamela wouldn't do for her special boy, and she will kill anyone who gets in her way. She is an unsung antihero, and she is a pivotal role in the Jason franchise, because she just loved her boy, and she would kill for him, and her boy would kill for her at the end of the day.
1: Completely. She's such an absolutely fascinating character, and honestly... If they never made any more Friday the 13th movies, just having Friday the 13th on its own, like a standalone, no mm. other movies, it would have been so good. I agree. So good. Mm, like even better. And then just, not that the the ongoing, on ongoing, forever, <laughs> sequels, they don't diminish the impact of that movie, but it's easily forgotten because of all the nonsense that happens later on. But that movie is actually quite, quite dark, quite you know scary and uh and her she's a much more interesting character
0: yeah
1: um and like i said so brilliantly played by betsy palmer i mean she's psychopathic she's sociopathic and completely on un- unsuspecting she comes out of that car with that big wonderful beautiful smile and alice is like oh, yes you know of course that's just like i'm just gonna fall into your arms All this crazy shit is happening and you are just like this radiant, you know, thing coming towards me of true, just like maternal (laughs) warmth and comfort until. Until. Jeez. Until. (laughs) Um, You mentioned Norman Bates earlier, which is really fantastic because... Uh, she's kind of like the reverse Norman Bates. She's mm-hmm. a mother driven by the memory of her son that she was hugely protective over and loved deeply. And we can assume we're very, very bonded. Yeah. So she was a really, really interesting character. And Ms. Voorhees, we salute you.
0: Kelly, so since we've like talked about these different uh, final girls, like who is your favorite final girl?
1: My favorite final girl is Ginny. Mm. She is very sweet, lovely, down to earth, caring, super smart. And again, going back to how absolutely brilliant and high risk it was to pretend to be Mrs. Voorhees to bring down Jason. It was a very high risk move. And we don't see something of that, you know, that fortitude. You just don't see a, a final girl acting in that in that way ever again and i think that she was super fantastic and she was my favorite
0: mm-hmm. you and, and like i was gonna say like originally i was saying like alice and Ginny, but when i really like say at the end like when i really look at it at the end of the day i think Ginny is also my favorite finer girl because like you said she takes a risk she took and like a giant risk it could not that could not have worked if, and it really reveals something about Jason, the fact that how bonded he is with his mother, and so how mm-hmm. easy how easily manipulated he was to be able to stop killing by Ginny pretending to be his mother I really like that, like I will give like my honorable like, you know, nod to Alice you know, being the first of the final girl series being the first to go up against uh, a, a killer, you know, especially someone like Pamela Voorhees, and like you said, to take her head off um, but Ginny you know, really, really, really sets it for me. Like she just really sets it all up that I really enjoy how watching her on screen and watching her interact with all the with the, all the other uh, train campers, camp counselors, and she's just she's smart and intelligent. And I think she survives because we never hear it, that she yeah. dies later on. So yeah. we're like you know, good yeah. a final girl who will continue on surviving and will probably have to deal with the, the the constant tragedy and the trauma of having to go through that situation, but. At least we know she survives.
1: So today we actually have a special guest, and you would know him best for all the conservation work he does, keeping our beaches and parks clean, and is very familiar with the legend of Camp Blood, Jason Voorhees. Thank you for joining us today, Jason. We are happy that uh, you were able to join us as well. How do you think you were portrayed in the Friday the 13th franchise? (laughs)
0: Okay, so moving on. How do you feel about the misconception that you are the killer in the first movie? So not much of a talker, are you? The strong silent type, but I like that. All right. Well, I think we'll continue on with the podcast, but, you know, thank you for joining us today and keep up the good work.
1: On to slasher films and the POV shot, you know, talking about the male gaze. So I was finally able to and I've been meaning to it's always one of those things you want to read but finally read Laura Mulvey's Visual Pleasure Narrative Cinema so it's a great read I do recommend it there's a lot of film terminology and stuff like that in it so there's a lot of it I didn't really get because I'm not a film person but mm. the main important points that I got from it so she's the one that kind of described and kind of identified what we call as a male gaze so so film has been structured unconsciously for many, many years around our patriarchal society. They they have been manipulating our viewing pleasure for so long and even in ways that we can't even fully understand. So watching film makes us voyeurs. We can see into each other's lives, see other people. We love movies. We love watching them, especially with horror. Like we can see these crazy things happening to different people, but it can actually turn into a bit of a fetish. That's where, you know, kind of the term of Peeping Toms come from. We can... We objectify the people on screen and also can become again the fetish but erotic pleasure and women have been displayed as an erotic image as soon as essentially film became a thing we started looking at women differently we started seeing them as sexual objects and film was the spectacle and a narrative so we can have the viewing pleasure but also a story to go along with it And the woman so often, and especially in early films and even now, has been the sexual object for the male protagonist and those watching the film. Males watching the film want to identify with the protagonist. It's often so much about our ego. They want to identify and relate to them. So overall, the male gaze is the act of depicting women and the world in the visual arts and in literature from a masculine heterosexual perspective that presents and represents women as sexual objects for the pleasure of the male viewer. It's essentially what she was getting at in that wonderful article. However... Mulvey assumed that it was only heterosexual men watching and getting pleasure from these movies. She actually didn't factor in anyone else. So women, lesbians, gay men, or everybody in between. We all like to watch these movies. We love horror movies. So much of us do. Also, she didn't factor in what Carol Clover was to discover, and that's that male view- viewers can actually identify with female characters. That is a thing that can happen. So Clover notes that while they might identify with the slasher early in the film kind of getting into the slasher films now often the male viewers will cheer for the final girl by the end of it and a portion of that comes down to our point of view shot the pov shot so that puts us in the in the shoes of the person looking it's the killer making us the killer and having the spectator not be able to empathize or relate to those being looked at or gazed at or killed So this is one of the issues that, you know, feminists have had with slasher films throughout the years because women most often, but also men, they're stalked and killed by these slashers and were meant not to care about their deaths. Their bodies are just to be gazed upon, objectified and killed. However, once the final girl takes control in these movies, we often see a loss of the POV shot and the voyeurism. It's her world now. She has taken control of the spectator asking them to follow her journey, see her and root for her. Which is really great and something I definitely noticed watching the Friday the 13th movies. You know, once it gets closer to the climax and the end of the film, that POV shot, the voyeurism is gone and now it's the final girl's world. So. Isabel Pindo was, uh, she wrote Recreational Terror Women on the Pleasures of Horror Film Viewing. So she looked at women who get enjoyment out of slasher films because we still enjoy them. You know, one of my favorite uh, authors, Alex West loves slasher film and she's a huge feminist and loves horror films. So in her book she talks about herself as being dissatisfied with a lot of the conventional feminist analysis of slasher films because it didn't account for her own pleasure in watching them. And she particularly liked the idea of the final girl. Of course, the final girl is fantastic. Like we said, she is the element that doesn't make slashers inherently misogynistic movies. Mm -hmm. So what she had thought and felt was women spectators like herself liked slasher films because such movies articulate their very legitimate anxieties about male violence and their fears of being assaulted and raped. They're impatient with the bimbos, because they are clueless about defending themselves. The quote-unquote bimbos represent weakness in themselves which they are angry about and want to distance themselves from. In The Final Girl, by absolute contrast, they see the possibility of actually fighting back. She notes the tactics used by Final Girls are often those that are recommended in self-defense classes for warding off male assault. And these women have to fight for their absolute lives. They've already seen people being killed or come across their dead bodies so they're absolute desire and willingness to survive at all costs is so high which is why they're the final girls so that quote from that woman reminded me when I was rewatching watching uh, Friday the 13th part 4 this was a very unlike Jason overall so there's a scene where you have Trish who's Tommy's sister both of them are upstairs Jason is in between them he goes for the woman he does not go for the boy and we know that Jason doesn't kill children there's also scenes in number five, I believe, when there's a whole bunch of children at the camp, mm-hmm. but he does not kill any of them. Like, that could have been easy pickings, but he just kind of visits their cabin and leaves. Anyways, not the exact point I was trying to make, but, you know, he doesn't kill children. So in that sense, he goes towards the young woman. He doesn't go after the boy. He goes after the woman, and which is what we know that he goes after, these young women. So what ends up happening is that he attacks her, but he ends up being on top of her. And it's very reminiscent of a sexual assault woman screaming, trying to get away from her attacker while he's overpowering on top of her. It's really scary. It was actually a very unnerving moment in that movie for me. And that's not what Jason does. Like he's a hack and slash. He's not a get on top of somebody and kind of fight them because nothing really happens. He's just trying to like hold her down. And she's fighting him as much as possible. And yeah, it just really, really unsettled me.
0: Oh, yeah, that was weird.
1: It was odd, but it was just like highly unnerving because that's exactly what it made me think of was uh, an assault, which is not great. Um, So in Barbara Dozier's 2010 essay, it's called The Relationship Between Horror and Women's Sexuality with Specific Reference to the 1970s, which I just found today. And I would love to read it. Add that to the list. (laughs) And she said, in observing the entire history of the genre of horror, it is stressed that women's roles have changed greatly from the women's role as primary victims to women's liberation, in the seventies in which there's a clear picture of a woman as, as a warrior, as a survivor. So slasher films present women as both a helpless victim. We see a lot of them dispatched and a bold hero moving her from being the damsel that needed saving to one clever enough to outwit the killer and also outlast the male characters. Again, kudos and so many props to the final girls of this series.
0: So watching a slasher movie is a very physical experience, uh, especially for viewers. You find a lot of people like, you know, they're covering their eyes, they're holding their breath. You can people can feel like their muscles tensing up and people tend to be pretty jumpy. And studios like this, they love this. They love that people have very visual reactions or very visceral reactions to these films because a slasher films are also very predictable and you're always have a possibility of doing sequels or remakes. And many, many of the video nasties uh, have slasher films listed on them. So a lot of things that come out of uh, slasher films and is often a reviled, reviled subgenre of horror is a lot of the, because a lot of the sex and the violence which makes these movies very popular and financially profitable so we know with elements of a slasher you typically have um, as kelly said you know in the past before we have uh, a past accident we have a, or a failed prank we've got nudity we've got immoral behavior of our victims we're in you know other unfamiliar locations or a familiar location or in a lot of times there's the sudden and shocking death scenes and then we always have the final girl and in this article that i read that talked about slasher films and sex and violence involved in them uh two um studies uh Melo- Molitor and Spadlowski, in 1993 wrote they formally defined the slasher film as a commercially released feature-length film containing suspense evoking scenes in which antagonist who is usually male acting alone acts attacks one or more victims. The accentuation in these films is extreme graphic violence. Scenes that dwell on the victim's fear and explicitly portray the attack and its aftermath are the central focus of the slasher film. First the slasher film has been labeled as misogynistic subgenre which women are more frequently shown in states of terror and are disproportionately depicted as victims of serious and graphic violence as compared to men. Second, the slasher film has been accused of containing violent presentations in which graphic violence against women is frequently juxtaposed with sex and nudity. And this is uh, from Andrew Welsh. I talked about his article in my latest blog post about some of the feminist elements of slasher films. But this is what they typically see, like, two elements of the slasher films. And in this article alone, they did an analysis of slasher films because a lot of people like to claim that... They find that more women experience violent deaths, that the claim that a frequent analysis has been done on slasher films to find out if they claim that more, far more women experience violent deaths than men is a true claim. So a study done in 1990 by Cohen and O'Brien conducted a study of 56 films that focused on sexual behavior, personality traits, and survival. And the results revealed that female characters are more likely to be victimized, but in fact were more likely to be surviving, survive acts of violence in comparison to the male characters.
1: Sorry Jess, do you mean that the female characters were not
0: more likely? Yes. They okay. found that the results of the female characters were not more likely to be victimized, but in fact survive a lot of violent acts. Um, in comparison to their male characters, yet yeah, they did find that a large portion of victims were engaging in sexual activity. In 1991, uh, Weaver did a study focused on only 10 slasher films, whereas in 1993, Molitor and Spoliski looked at 30 slasher films, both from 1980, 1985, and 1989, and both studies found no difference in the rate of violence towards men and women. And actually, in the 1993 study, they found that men had higher rates of death and injuries in comparison to the women, yet they did find that female death scenes were longer than male death scenes. And then in two thousand uh, and three, Spasowski, Molotar, and Liqui—I can't say these names—conducted another study on sexual acts and violence conducted in ten commercial slasher films of the nineties and ten action adventure films. And while they found that men were more likely to be victims in slasher films, women's death scenes were longer. They did not find that, in comparison to action adventure films, that there were more female victims. So the article that I read by Andrew Welsh, his study was to really look at that slasher films starting from the 1960s do show more that there is a, does show that there is a significant difference in the nature of violence against female characters than there has been previously argued. So people are are saying so like all these studies are saying that yeah there's not enough that there's more violence towards women the death scenes are much longer but it's not in comparison to men that more men that men just as many men die as women in these films but Andrew's current study was saying like no. If you look at films like from the 1960s to today, you can say that the nature of violence against women is actually significantly more than what's been previously argued that you just can't take one little study and say like, well, well, in this certain time period, it wasn't as as bad, right? But in comparison, slash the slasher films, the genre itself that there has there has a tendency to be more violence depicted towards women.
1: Interesting. I was going to say until you said that last bit, and I'd love to read his article that um that you reference in your blog post because I was beginning to think that there's a lot of misconceptions or just you know when it's like it's like cross-generational we just like stories passed down from generations of people talking to each other over the last 30 40 years like horror movies so misogynistic women this women that you know but maybe it's just if you sit down and look at it it's not actually as bad as we think but I would love to read that article about that. So I revisited razors in the Dreamscape, re- revisited A Nightmare on Elm Street in the slasher film by James Kendrick. I quoted that in the Nightmare on Elm Street episode that we did. But, you know, going back to the POV shot, the point of view shot that a lot of slashers use, and definitely in the Friday the 13th, I find that actually later on in the series, you kind of lose the POV shot. The first, like, the, definitely the first three are very a certain aesthetic to them that kind of feel a little bit more 70s because it's the early 80s a lot of the pov shot and everything they lose that i think by at least by the sixth one so we just don't see it later on because it becomes just 80s fun type movies instead of like straight up classic kind of slasher style So Clover, in her book, uh, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, thoroughly critiqued the argument that the point-of-view shot is inherently a bad thing, essentially. Uh, So she questioned the equation between the point-of-view shot and direct identification, and by suggesting that the, quote, handheld or similarly unanchored first-person camera works as much to destabilize as to stabilize identification. But she still holds that the killer's the point of view shot or the eye camera as she calls it it's a striking formulaic element of the genre we use it so much and she also states that uh, you know the viewer has the ability to adapt their point of view they can have they can have their own sense of self in their mind to adapt their point of view from the killer to to the victim but we and we need that in the slasher film the audience wants to see his the killer make his way towards the final girl but in the end ultimately her survival is a quote feminizing of the audience because no viewer is going to cheer for the death of the final girl we all naturally want her to survive despite who we are men women everyone in between we want to see our final girl survive And another interesting point about slashers. Um, It should be noted that the slashers killers are almost all, they're pretty much always masked, almost always masked. Very rarely do we see the killer's face, um, which allows the killer to represent anyone and everyone in society. Being a faceless killer shows, uh, you know, allows for a certain amount of anonymity. And it's a tradition in the slasher film. We, you know, depersonalize our killers, And according to Carol Clover, quote, these killers are human, but only marginally so, just as they are only marginally visible to their victims and to us, the spectators.
0: So typically slasher films are actually considered teen films because of the way they interweave a violent narrative with the lifestyle of teenagers. Um, which you know which means that for some reason we'd have a tendency to depict violence with overt sexuality and erotic imagery which is the feeling of the male gaze. So the male gaze is typically related to the liberation of women after World War II where women's roles changed in society then and the 1960s saw an advancement in uh, female sexual liberation thus enhancing the male gaze to focus on the eroticism of women and punishing them for it particularly in film. Male interest in slasher films uh, this article I was reading was saying is due to the killer, most likely mostly being male, and he's a, he's a seen as a presence of a patriarchal figure as well in these films. Uh, whereas the women tend to like Sasha films less, as though men are uh, because men are not as targeted as viciously as women, and who happen to either be murdered either because they're in nude or they're in some form of exposure. So, this is not. My opinion, in the ways, it's just in the, in reference to this article that was talking about the idea of the male gaze in the slasher films and how they feel of them. We see that uh, the downfall and the erotic exposure of women is an example of male dominance and enforcing archaic ideas that the male body is the norm and the female body is deviant. So, why do these women enjoy these films? Like, there are women who do enjoy slasher films. I enjoy a good slasher film, and. Some, saying, some studies were saying it's possibly because women are insecure and so we aspire to be the leading ladies in these films um, rather in observing them through their acts of uh, courage, um, intelligence, they're, you know, they're a little bit more boyish and we're not observing her in a sexual way whereas we see the other, the other women in these slasher films are seen in more sexual ways as well. And I argue something very different in my recent blog posts about feminist elements in slasher films. But we also know that the film industry is typically dominated by male figures, uh, directors, producers, uh, writers, and a lot of times that's where we find a lot of the male gaze is being driven by and really focusing on male sexual desires. Because women are seen as physically and sociologically weaker, um, it is that they can't possibly uh, be the object of the male gaze unless there's something that pleases the viewer which is often associated with men, so seeing women in a sexual ways. Uh, the Friday the 13th series uses the first-person perspective to inflict the male gaze on the audience. The antagonist is mostly hidden and is used to stalk and kill and approach approaches victim, allowing his audience to be a part of the engagement between the victim and the killer. Males on film use coarse and sexualized language, mirroring the, mirroring the sexist comments that women face day to day. The designation of gender roles in film. Men are called upon to do the jobs that require strength, power, and authority while the women are to be spectators. And we see that there's a lot of big focus on female nudity over the kills. So we, there are quite a few scenes where we see women undressing, and we see a lot of underwear scenes and a lot of boob scenes, and that's very much uh, largely of the male gaze. And then we get our, you know, our fan girl, Alice. She's smart, she's reserved, she's modest, but we never see her nude on screen. Like even though we do see her play strip poker. she doesn't get as naked as her friend and we also see we have uh, another the only other female in the film is miss Voorhees who takes on the persona of her dead son re- reenacting revenge and her con- condemnation of these sexual acts against the female insecurities, often the murders of the women are isolated and they're quite dramatic so this is kind of interesting how we see these elements in these slasher films this idea of the male gaze really driving uh people's ideas and thoughts that this is why they can be misogynistic. But, at the end of the day, I like to argue that, yes, while there are some heavy elements of misogyny in these films, there are actual, some very subtle elements of feminism in these movies. And this is where I find myself, I like to argue that, you know, this is where we can really turn the perspective of these films around. And if you haven't read Jess's blog post, please do so. (laughs) So, out of watching all eight of these films this month what are your top three
1: (laughs) my top three are part two four and six and i realize that now those are all (laughs)
0: dividends
1: (laughs) two four six didn't even think about that but yep number two four and six how about you
0: for me it's one two and three the the first three films of the series they're my favorite wow yeah they're the strongest
1: interesting Mm -hmm. all right so briefly why do you like one two and three
0: uh, like I said, they are the strongest of the series. We've got the strongest final girls. We have more interesting storyline, more interesting plot. Like you said, I'm all about atmosphere, so I really like that it sticks within the summer camp <laughs> genre. So the perfect yeah. summer camp movie. Uh, even though, like, we have uh, we have more interesting final girls. The, the people surrounding the final girl are also interesting characters as well. And you get to know a little bit about each of those characters. A little bit, but not too much. Just enough to kind of bring you into the film. And I like that Jason is not always seen. He's more like, mm-hmm. just he's just a presence. And that's what mm-hmm. makes him in those four, four three movies more scary to me. He just, he shows up, mm-hmm. he, he's like, Jason's here, you're dead, done, he moves on. Like, there's no other, mm-hmm. you know, thing, elements to it very right. simple
1: <laughs> that's fair that's that's very fair those are great ones except for fuck fry the <laughs> fuck fry the 13th they kill oh yeah yeah um so it'll never be on my top three. <laughs> two, four, and six so two has that like it's still it's early 80s so it kind of has that 70s kind of look and feel the old slasher style uh and then Ginny which is my favorite final girl so I do like that one. Even though it's not the iconic looking Jason, um he's human in this mm-hmm. and uh he seems like he can easily be taken over and of course I still love the brilliance of her um donning the uh the Pamela Voorhees sweater in persona. Yeah. Number 4 It's the series is starting to become fun I like the kills I like the premise I do like the Tommy Doyle aspect of the series uh, Jason's aesthetics and Crispin Glover (laughs) I have a lot of fun with it of course the like the first three are just a bit more they're more serious four is when we start getting a little bit fun but fun in a good way Mm Um, six again super super fun I had a blast with this one Jason looks great and this is my favorite look of his it has that very 80s feel to it so you start losing that 70s early 80s summer camp vibe and now it's just like our fun 80s probably number six is like the nightmare four to me. Uh, okay. it's kind of got <laughs> it's like it's got that 80s feel to it. We got the Alice Cooper theme song. We got Alice Cooper playing multiple times in the movie. And Jason, this is his highest body count. He fucking just hacks and slashes his way through all of those characters. Like he's just like, bam, bam, everyone <laughs> just being dead. He's on a mission. Yeah. You can tell he's got shit to do. And Megan's in that one. And she is a sassy, fun lady. And I was, I'm glad that she was in there to help uh, Tommy Doyle or
0: around i can understand that so now it's time for our spinster's final thought oh friday the 13th
1: <laughs> <laughs> i finished number eight today because honestly it's been it's been a bit of of an ordeal to get through these movies mm. um so friday the 13th is actually one of the most influential horror franchises of the 80s It has already grossed, as of 2009, over $600 million, making it the most financially lucrative horror film franchises of all time. This movie, like this franchise, is kind of crazy. Um, The part three, the 3D installment, um, was so kind of revolutionary and inspired a bunch of other movies. Jaws 3D and like a bunch of other movies to do the 3D. And I got some glasses and I watched... Portions of it because I had already watched it. I am not re watching any of these movies for a long time, except for tonight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um So, I mean, these movies aren't about quality, but they are about quantity. You know, Friday the 13th part two was released four months after the release of the original Friday the 13th. They're like, oh, this was a huge hit. Bam, bam. We're just getting all these sequels. That's why, in, in a decade, eight movies were released it's insane it's insane you know it's pure entertainment it ended up being a bit of a goof um unfortunately but it is what it is um so you know halloween introduced the slasher kind of prototype and then we know friday the 13th perfected it to a t which is there's positive and negative aspects to that so years ago before doing any kind of academic reading about horror um I had rewatched all the Friday the 13th movies and I had noticed there was a lot of survivor girls. And at that time I didn't even know the term final girl. Uh, It was just one of those things that I, that really stood out to me in the franchise. It was like Jason, like that iconic horror character and women. I was like, women always survive at the end of these movies. This is really fantastic. I really like this about this franchise. Um, Although I find a lot of the women are essentially replicas of each other. There's not a lot of diversity in our final girls. I still enjoy and value and appreciate the aspect that this franchise gives us and slasher movies overall. There are Other final girls that are stronger, more developed, uh, like Nancy and Alice from Nightmare on Elm Street, Christy Cotton, Hellraiser, and later on my favorite, Cindy Prescott and Scream series. But I still think there's a lot of merit in in enjoying the plight of the final girl. And, you know, Friday the 13th gave us many to root for. So I think that's super fun. Although I can understand the, the fandom surrounding this franchise, it's definitely still my least favorite out of the top three out of Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, and Friday the 13th. I don't think it holds up at all to be marathoned, and I do not recommend anybody doing that. It was really challenging for me to get through these movies because so I feel like there's such filler sequels that it was challenging, and they're kind of boring. I mean, if you think back at Friday the 13th, like I said earlier, you think there's going to be all these crazy, wonderful kills, but there really isn't. I'd much rather watch other movies like Black Christmas. Yes.
0: Oh, my gosh, yes, <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> so... I understand the interest and the need to create a franchise during the 80s. Like I said, it was a huge huge boom in the horror industry and people were eating this up like I can only imagine how exciting and fun it would have been to see all these movies released in the theaters you know what I mean like that that would be super fun like I totally get it that's not a thing that happens now except for me maybe John Wick I go to see those in the theater and that's a franchise not a (laughs) horror franchise but you know it's exciting when a new movie comes out that you're really pumped about so maybe there's a part of Friday the 13th that was you had to kind of be there to really get it but you know so moving on i guess i should go and rewatch all the 90s installments nah, <laughs> nah,
0: don't. nah. don't 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 hurt yourself don't don't do that to yourself well for me like the fire 13 series is the epitome of the slasher series like they were able to like you said perfect it they were able to market it like crazy there's so much merchandise surrounding the friday the 13th like i even have my own friday the 13th like t-shirt and i got some pins and like you know we see in all the halloween stores like nightmare on elm street friday the 13th like halloween like these are the top three most marketed most you know they've made the most money I know there's a lot of rights issue around Friday the 13th, so that makes it so even like more intriguing to people because like they want to see remakes. They want to see more of this come out. I've talked to people who are just like, I would love for another Friday the 13th movie to come out, but we know that's not going to happen with all the rights issues around it right now. Like Even when that... Uh MMO style game that came out and people were just like yeah oh, they're so excited to play it but like there's been no other DLC content to it because of the rights issues around these films so it is I guess is a very important series of the 80s that came out to be part of that top three. I however you know feel that the series loses itself like, like that it goes on too long for me like. After watching The 7th, The 8th, then I watched Jason Goes to Hell this morning before the podcast and Don't Even Get Me Started on that movie. I didn't have no idea what the heck was happening. Just, Just so much. Like Jason as a character changes. He makes sounds and he tortures his victims. Jason doesn't torture people. He kills them. That's it. Like in, out they like wham bam thank you ma'am i'm done i've killed you I'm moving on to the next victim i'm not going to torture you i've seen freddy versus jason a long time ago and that was kind of like a fun interesting you know kind of throwback to the slasher films and a part of me is like should i complete out this series by watching jason x I don't know if I could. Um, I think I may watch it and then go listen to the podcast. How did this get made? Because they did the whole. They did. They watched that movie and talked glorious gloriously fun stuff about it. So yeah. So for me, it's not my favorite of the slasher series. But it does have some interesting ideas. It really, it did really challenge me this month when it came to thinking outside the box and looking at this film and horror in general. Is you know, it's not misogynistic, and where are the feminist elements outside of the final girl that are in these series? And there are these elements in it. But I will agree with Kelly it's not a series I would marathon again. It is not a series I would dedicate a whole month to. And I know that there are diehard fans who love this series and will do that and all the power to you. You know, thumbs up, enjoy yourself. But to me, I found that they're too much, too similar, and a little bit boring at the end of the day.
1: So that ends our episode on the Friday the 13th franchise. We'll see you in six months when we finish off the series with a look at The Shape, Laurie Strode, and our final 80s horror franchise, Halloween. We want to thank Dance of the Dead for our intro-outro music, Robeast, and Brandon for all of his work on our promotional materials. Also, thank you to all of you listeners. We want to remind you to follow us on our website, spincersofhorror.com, Facebook, Spinsters of
0: Horror. We're also on Twitter, at Horror Spinsters, and our Instagram account, at Spinsters of Horror. As well, please rate and review us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, and any other podcasting app that you listen to us. And reminder, we do have merch. Please visit our TeePublic shop to purchase one of our t-shirts and buy stickers from our shop. So
1: next month is our one-year anniversary. Yay,
0: we're one years old.
1: Oh, Oh, I'm one year plus 35 years old (laughs) and (laughs) and we have some special stuff planned and the next episode is going to be a reflection on the past year and we'll talk about some of the films that we've been wanting to catch up on you know this month was a big month watching eight movies and the podcast keeps us busy watching a lot of different movies so it'll be a bit of a free month free discussion yeah and if you have any questions for us or for your favorite spinster then please send us a message but until then
0: remember the future of fear is female